Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Oh, wow. Like, no one's really doing this. I'm like, look, we're giving you free goals. And that's where it got like really sexy. Took my retirement savings and started to build SASBOM. SASBOM itself has had a pretty big influence on the start. It's a gamble. Manager recruitment is horribly backwards. Guys that are considered to be a problem, they don't generally change much. Experience is vastly overrated. If you can only have a player who's got one attribute, what would be the priority for you? Hello everybody, welcome back to The Process. This time with Ted Knutson from Statsbomb, which is a company that I will let you explain instead of me in just a second. But the point of this interview for me is to highlight football analytics and how they're just, it's taking a stronger and stronger hold on not just the game itself, but also how people like me, someone who's you know, a presenter in football, or people who have channels or whatever, fans, are interpreting the game as well. Uh, and then finally, I think it's I think just the, the journey of Statsbomb is really interesting uh, as well as as a company that's kind of at the forefront of that. And it was something that people didn't really want to go near maybe initially. And obviously, you can enlighten me on that. Maybe I don't know, but it's certainly something that people are, are diving into in a big way now. Um, so first things first, I think the, the best way to kick it off is what is what is Statsbomb, and what are the coolest things that you get to do as being as as uh, so first of all, I want to apologize. I, I'm at the back end of a flu, and so my voice is really rough. Uh, hopefully, it comes out all right. Uh, let's see, Statsbomb. Uh, so Statsbomb is one of the world's fastest-growing data companies, uh, sports data companies especially. Uh, we've been pretty explosive over the last <clears throat> 18 months since we introduced our own data. And one of the reasons why we introduced our own data was um, I talked to many people in the industry <clears throat> who didn't think there was space for it or thought it would be too big, too hard to do. Uh, but when I worked in football, we kept running across these conversations with coaches where they're like, well, you don't know this or you don't know that. And in some cases, you're like, well, you're just being grumpy about things. Do you mean sort of like an element of snobbery? Um, less so about that. Like they're, they're making legitimate points about what you might not be able to tell from a data perspective. And I think that that, like, you can't just brush that aside. Sometimes, you know, <clears throat> you can tell when they're not interested. But sometimes they're like, look... If I wanted to buy into this, I would need to know these other things. And that's important. Uh, so basically, we launched our own data in May of 2018. And at that point, the takeoff has been, been pretty successful so far. And, but like, it's a huge, huge market. Um, you know, across football, there's like 900 professional clubs mm. that you know, 
have pay their players and in England it, even down through League Two like there's some interest in this type of stuff. We got a contact from two different non-league clubs uh, last week, so it's uh, it's certainly happening now. When I first came out back in like 2016. You know, I was kind of looking for my next job, and so what's a, bit, what's a bit of a background on, on your sort of route to, to all of this? Have you have you always been interested in statistics or sports statistics? What's your what? How would you describe yourself as a sports fan? Uh, my two favorite sports are football and college football. So like different footballs, right? Uh, in this case, soccer. So soccer, yes. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and. I did professional gambling in the United States uh, from like 2005 to, to early 2007. Then the laws changed and that wasn't really possible anymore. Uh, so I ended up getting hired by one of the world's biggest internet bookies to, to retool their, their platform from an American facing to a rest of the world facing. And that place is called Pinnacle or Pinnacle Sports. Um, first year I was there, they lost like six million. <laughs> well, I'm through. Is that a, I mean, is that a big number or not? Like, um, for them, it probably wasn't that big a deal. For us, it was like catastrophic. Right. And uh, but basically, it was because of the financial crisis. They had a lot of bad debts that right, sure. <laughs> accumulated from people. Uh, and then by the time that I I left, they were profitable to the tune of like eighty to hundred million. Wow. Uh, so that was eight years later, and I built the live department there. I rebuilt the tennis department. I built the soccer department, um, or basically built it from very little. Uh, into something that was basically the, the profit driver between that and live and the whole company. Mm. Um, at a certain point, my wife, uh, I think, got tired of me working every weekend, especially when we had two small children. Right. And uh, I realized that while that was okay, while they weren't in full-time school, um, I kind of needed to transition to something a little more normal so I could see my kids. So um, basically, at the, at the midpoint of 2014, uh, had lunch with a guy named Matthew Benham and another guy named uh, Ricardo Larendart and, and Ricky kind of like drugged me in and was like, hey, you know, uh, we have some mutual friends. Tell me more about what you want to do with data and recruiting football players. Right. And Matthew Benham happens to be the owner of uh, Brentford and also the owner of Michelin, uh, two-time Danish champions now. Mm. And so went to work for them for a couple of years and, and really enjoyed that process and we weren't perfect. We learned a lot. Like you're gonna make mistakes in any sort of new thing, but it was nice to like kind of have like just it's almost like fresh snow. Like the, the first time the snow comes down, you're like, oh wow, like no one's really doing this. Yeah. And I was. And I, that did you get that not freedom, but the kind of trust to because Matthew Benham. For people who don't know much about Matthew Benham and, and Brentford's kind of model, there is a strong understanding uh, of the the worth of data and using it the the right way. And so when he then brings in someone like yourself, uh, by definition, he, he gives you a lot of, not leeway, but sort of um, opportunity to, like say, really sort of attack the opportunity that you've got. Right? Yeah, we did have uh, quite a bit, especially in the early days. Um, and basically what happened was in that first year, the first thing that I did was work on set pieces, which was really weird. Like I'm not a coach and uh, I don't have a background outside of like, I was qualified in uh, goalkeeper coaching in the United States in graduate school. But anyway, um, <clears throat> Matthew and I spoke the same language because he's also uh, made you know a lot of his money from professional gambling, mm -hmm. and so um, started talking about like just the use of stats and to find outliers is really what you're doing, and also uh, kind of a disbelief in and the traditional evaluation of which leagues are bad 
versus which leagues are good enough for the championship or the Premier League. Mm. And so we got rid of a lot of that. Um, you know, I think we were still quite successful. So basically, when I came in, there was that first season. I worked on set pieces, and um, and Brentford didn't really want to listen to that, but uh, because Warburton was there and he wanted to do his own thing. You, being a Q- QPR fan, might know Mark. Um, yes, <clears throat> Mark is a very organized coach, but also you know just didn't want kind of the external, you know, downstream stuff from the owner. Makes right. sense. He's traditional football. Yeah. But on the flip side, like Matthew has strong ideas about things that he thinks might be useful. So. Uh, Brentford weren't doing much of that, or almost not at all, and Michelin did, and it drove Michelin to the title. And that season, I think Brentford finished third bottom in set piece goals. And, like, and Michelin as well, people would remember that team because they beat Man United, didn't they? Uh, so the, the next year, uh, they yeah, so they won the league, and then they unfortunately didn't quite get into Champions League qualifying. They lost in, I think it was in Cyprus, in like insane heat or something like that. Right. Uh, could be wrong about yeah. There's an outlier for you. Take the Danish team from inside. Well, yeah, exactly. In, in August, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Ooh, this might be tough. Yeah, very, very pale people. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, so they were then in uh, Europa League qualifiers and uh, beat Southampton to get into the Europa League. Mm. Then in the group stage, uh, they faced Manchester United, beat Man United at home two uh, one uh, in in Denmark. And then I was at the Man United game uh, up at Old Trafford, my first ever time, sitting with the, the Danish fans uh, in the away end of, of Old Trafford. And Memphis put on a show in the second half. Yeah. And Andre Roymer got beat so bad that like, I wouldn't have been shocked to just see him do like the Tenenbaums thing, where he just like <laughs> takes his shoes off, sits on the ground, cries <laughs> a bit. Like, Memphis was just unplayable. Yeah. Uh, and so, so when it comes to the set pieces element of it, was the... Was that moment? Was it very, very impressive? The stats that you, and the sort of pr- um, end product that you could create with Mitchelland, and that's what allowed you to get a bit more uh, responsibility with Brentford. Well, uh, no, it was I was hired to do like recruitment and and uh, and player recruitment, and my title was head of player analytics, uh, which was basically like ended up being de facto uh, head of recruitment on the Brentford side. Mitchelland side, um, we would give it to like their scouting group, and then they would have final choice. But we would give them like the best names that we could find that they could buy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Seppi stuff happened, and and like it was weird, but basically we, it wasn't super statsy. Like we used stats to find the the teams that were best at executing certain things, uh, but then it was a lot of video work and qualitative analysis to find out best practices. How could we do stuff? And that's one where I really like the puzzle solving element. It's it's a little like American football in that like you have a stop start and you can create different things going on. <coughs> You're trying to get a free man in a particular space, whatever, and it never stops being fun. Um, so we had success with it and they've continued to have success, which is also great. Yeah. It wasn't just like you know, a one shot and done. Um, and so uh, we then came back to it, I think last year, from a staff bomb side. And said, you know, we can build a course around this. Like some people just thought that it, it only succeeded because it was in Denmark, or it only did this, or it only did that. And the fact of the matter is, like, just set pieces are really backwards in football, a bit like data. So okay. it was a it was a place where the coaches thought they knew best, and then we proved overwhelmingly that they didn't know best, and they still <laughs> found ways to like you know be like, oh well, we don't need that. Like, look, we're giving you free goals. Like, how can you want to turn down free goals? Like, free ice cream. Nobody turns down free ice cream. So in terms of offset players, in terms of working backwards, yeah, exactly, that's a good way of putting it. In terms of, what do you mean by that process of working backwards in terms of finding the answers that you want? Or not the answers that you want, or just... I thought that was interesting, what you said a bit earlier, that 
as as someone who kind of has a sort of basic level of of statistics, I think what I'm starting to realise is is actually the deeper you go in, the less not the less answers there are, but the more of an understanding that there isn't one definitive answer, right? Sure. So with your experience with set pieces, what what did you learn in terms of moving backwards from the, the end? Sure. Um, well, it wasn't just about moving back. So we have these assumptions. Like you go in, you haven't worked with the coaches, you kind of assume how it might work. Like short corners, is, is that often one though, where people say, people get annoyed when you don't just put it in the box? It's partly that, but like what are you doing when you put it in the box? Like what are the guys supposed to do? Do they know what they're supposed to do? Like what is the actual plan? And so often we found that there wasn't a plan. And you're like, oh, well that's an entirely different problem than I, what I thought it was. Uh, that's a horse of an entirely different color, you might say. Mm. Um, should you be in the Wizard of Oz? Um, so basically what we what we did was like, well, we just need a plan and we need lots of plans. And can we build a playbook? And can we make sure that the, the players understand what we're doing? And then can we add long throws? And that's where it got like really sexy. Um, <laughs> well, I did. I mean, that's you're, amazing, yeah. You're, you're like, uh, we look back at, uh, at the Stoke data <clears throat> and uh, when we hadn't had it in uh, our, our data visualizations, uh, we hadn't had the filter in. And then suddenly we put the filter in. I was like, oh, <coughs> I wonder how many shots and goals uh, Stoke created in like the Roy de Lap years yeah. off of long throws. So we put them in the filter for the shot maps. And one season Stoke had 53 shots and I think eight goals off of long throws alone. 53 shots was like 15% of their total shot volume just wow. off of chucking the ball into, into the box. And Roy de Lap's throw was great. Um, but then it, it was like, you get all tingly. You're like, oh. I didn't know that. And uh, can we find somebody to teach players to do long throws? Is that possible? And uh, the world record holder in the long throw was a, a Dane named Thomas Gronemark, who has subsequently been hired by Liverpool yeah. to also teach throw-ins. So, uh, so yeah, it's been a it's been a fun thing. Like we've we've done some things really well and done some things less well, but they they haven't you know sort of they didn't. They weren't that painful for the most part. Um, yeah, so anyways, like football was lovely. Mm. And then uh, 2016, there was some reshuffling. Uh, and uh, basically, I came out and was looking at my next job and thinking that you know, we were pretty successful and people were like paying attention and, yeah. and whatever. And uh, I looked around uh, England and it was like crickets. Was like, well, that was, that was one question <laughs> that I did have written down. Is that, have you <clears throat> noticed, and it sounds like you might have, that English football or British football there is a, a stronger resistance to this world than elsewhere because you know listen no, no you say no okay it's just because I want to because when I listen to because when I listen to podcasts about the NBA, NBA or, or basically American sports there's so much there feels like there's so much data within it just in terms of taking in the game or match. sure but that's like 2005 2006 when they started right. and, and baseball was like the beginning of the 2000s. And um, <clears throat> I've, been able, I've been lucky enough to talk to Billy Bean a couple times. And, and Billy Bean, I think last year, uh, was like, Teddy, like, you know, the stuff that happened, like, the dinosaurs are all gone. And, and eventually, basically, you know, we had all this resistance back in the early days, but like, none of those guys work in baseball anymore. They all got cycled out right. and they all like, stopped getting hired unless they got on board. And so it's a time process. And what we found in England was actually, so I came out in 2016 looking for my next job. And there wasn't one. I could have taken like a technical scouting role at a championship club, but like, to be honest with you, I, I'm just 
I get so frustrated by something like that because like I know that we can do a lot more. Yeah. And I would I would rub people the wrong way constantly because I'd want to do more, and so it would just would have been a bad choice. So um, basically, took my retirement savings and started to build SaaS bomb, and realizing that you know, even if the market wasn't ready quite now. I thought that most of the world would need the tools that we built inside of Brentford and Mitchelland to be able to do recruitment, to be able to do analysis stuff. Uh, we might be able to do some consulting work. And then um, yeah, eventually we realized that we could just build better data. And so that's kind of how that whole process happened. I came out and England wasn't ready. But then within the next two years, England really was ready. And we're seeing you know, different languages and different countries um, struggle a little bit to wrap their heads around this. But it's mostly just because they haven't been talked to in their own language. But you were saying there that it's it's a time thing, and so you know, with <laughs> baseball, it was involved, it was implemented a, a lot sooner, and so by that 2016, everyone's in it. What was what was the moment? What do you think might be the catalyst in English football? What, what you know? Do you feel like it is the stuff that you've done, or is there something else that you saw there that you thought that was a kind of a turning point in terms of people's views on it? I don't want to be arrogant about this, but I just want to be honest about it. And it's not just me. Uh, Statsbomb itself has had a pretty big influence like right from the start. It, it's, it's really weird to think back that when I started writing about players and analyzing players, almost nobody was doing that from a statistical perspective. Like you might get scouting reports from guys and there would be these guys that either had been professional scouts and they would talk about some players, they would list some players, whatever. And I started doing like statistical breakdowns and like large scale ones. Hey, these are the really interesting players from this league and from that league. And it was very early stuff, um, stuff that, but like some of the things we stumbled onto were, were pretty valuable. And, and many of the, the players that I flagged up in that first year went on to become really top tier players, uh, unexpectedly so to most people in oh, Come on, come on. Name drop for me. I mean, Diego Costa was one of the really early ones. Like, you're like, look, like, Falcao doesn't matter. Like, Diego Costa is fascinating. Um, you know, Eric Lamella was very early on there, but like some of them were also duds too. Uh, plenty of them were were really cheap at the time. Uh, Max Cruz, uh, so like two point five million euros went on to play in the Champions League, stuff like that. Uh, I mean, there's just a lot. Yeah. And and then playing more with the data as we went along, you know, who might Arsenal sign as like a, <clears throat> you know a striker to to either complement or replace uh, Giroud after Van Persie had left, and the people that were flagged up were like Lacazette in twenty fourteen. Uh, prior, prior to that, Aubameyang, who had been taken on board at, uh, at Dortmund. Um, uh, God, a uh, guy who went to PSG, like Julian Draxler. Like, mm. So like plenty of ones that, that you're like, oh, and, and in the very early days, uh, I did a, a thing for, I think, Arsenal column. And the guy that I most wanted, uh, outside of Iguain, the guy that I most wanted Arsenal to sign was a kid named Kevin De Bruyne, who had been on, <laughs> who'd been on loan. Uh, in How the, did he get on? Did he have a good yeah, he, he's allegedly pretty good. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was that type of stuff, and, and we were just doing like the baby steps, and then that got me noticed inside of football, and then you know we, we still have done some of that, and some of the fun things like you know I uh, Matthew became friends with Thomas Tuchel uh, at at Dortmund, uh, and even before he went to Dortmund, like Thomas took a year out of his man's contract or whatever while he was waiting. And learned and went around to talk to you know kind of leading thought people thought leaders to like figure mm. out are there better ways to play football can I learn <clears throat> and um, I got this email from a friend uh, in German who also was like working basically Tuchel connected us with Sven Islintat and they were looking at players for uh, their summer window in 2015 mm -hmm. and uh, they wanted us to review their strikers and I wasn't like super impressed by the strikers um, 
and then I, we proposed a number of other ones. But there's this guy. They had like four potential uh, defensive midfielders they would sign. And one of them was N'Golo Kante. And you're like, man, that's a sliding doors moment, isn't it? Like, wow. if, if Dortmund signed N'Golo Kante, what happens? And if Luster don't get it and then Chelsea don't get it, what happens? What, well, to the entire <laughs> league, right? Yeah, yeah. To the Premier League as a whole, like, it's, it doesn't happen, does yeah, it? Yeah, it's a fascinating moment. And, and he was like one of four. And I don't think they signed any of off that list, but pretty intriguing stuff. So I guess on a personal note, when you, when you look, at it, look at it, there was a, a moment of being brave enough to start StatsBomb, taking that retirement money and, and doing it. What was, <coughs> you know, as someone who works in statistics, was that quite an emotional decision or you, were you able to kind of look at it clearly and go, no, there's a, there's a, there's a huge market for this? I would say it's a, it's a gamble, you know, like, and I was a professional gambler for a long time. And, and to be fair, like transfer pricing is also a gamble. Like this is what we think the value of this player should be. It's, Sorry. <laughs> well, welcome to the Innovation Center. Yes, yeah. Where we have uh, regular construction. Really? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it feels like it's paid off, but like every day, you know, you're also a little worried that, that somebody's going to come in and do better than you. And it's a very, it's a motivating force. It's not fear. Like we want to continue to progress the space and stats bomb. So I, I think back to the beginning, I kind of totally moved off of this, but Statsbomb from the early days had like a really kind of impressive, engaged follower list. Like plenty of people that were in football followed us on Twitter mm. and then started listening to the podcast. And I didn't even know the people that listened to the podcast, but like I've gone around the UK and like, oh, I listen to your podcast. I was like, oh, uh, what did we say about them this week? And like, right. you know, we're, we're not, we, we don't criticize like directly, but we try to analyze and find out what's going on. Yeah, I think that's what I like about the podcast. Uh, and I think th this is the sort of route I want to go down with uh, with incorporating statistics in the way that I look at football is, is exactly the tone that you have with the podcast where it's two guys still having their opinions on things, but there can be a bit of seasoning from, from those statistics that help you either add weight to something or enlighten you on, on something as well. There's still, you know... Like James, for example, is the other person on the podcast. Is also a person who doesn't really understand Marvel films. Another James thing, <laughs> so similar to me. Uh, you know, he is, he's still that Spurs fan, isn't he? And he's still when Jose Mourinho comes in, he's still a bit excited, but a bit nervous, yeah. and all of those things. So that, that doesn't have to to go away. And um, let's let's talk about Jose Mourinho because it's the as we're recording, it's the big big story, and and more more so sort of manager recruitment because I. I find both the hiring and the firing of managers really, really interesting. And I know from listening to a, a different podcast, I think it was a TIFO podcast with one of your employees, he was talking about how that's part of the, the work that you guys do in terms of pairing up managers or possible managers. And it's a really, I think it's a really exciting one for, for people to want to try and call out that manager to see if they're going to go and do the business but doing the business in itself there's all these sort of um, <laughs> there's, there's all these ideas of Pochettino oh did he fail then or did he not fail and I've, I found it really interesting what he was talking about uh, with regards to how you match up managers to a club yeah so that's one thing that we did inside of the football clubs and then kind of adapted and took out of the football clubs as a consulting project which was basically Manager recruitment is horribly backwards. Like often it's asking around the club, who do you know that's interesting? Or asking like some agents that you know, like, you know, who could we get that might be good? 
<clears throat> and also people look for a style instead of success. Well, that's that's just it. Like, did success come from the budget that this guy had versus the rest of the league? Um, you know, are we attributing him to recruiting players that he had nothing to do with? Uh, are they playing a style of play that we want to play or that is unsuited to our current squad, mm. which I think is actually something that's very tricky. Um, so like summertime stuff, like usually, so say somebody is probably gonna change their manager at the end of the year, uh, they come to us in like January, February. And wow, they're, they're like, <laughs> so okay. early on. <laughs> Brutal. Lot, lot of NBA. People don't, think, people don't think that, do they? People think, right, okay, it was after, it's after the last game and then he's gone. But these are sort of, These are decisions that you know, understandably, biz- businesses think about uh, you know very early. They are, but also there's uncertainty, right? So, like, say you're January and you're on in the middle of a bad run, but you like your coach. But like, if if we can't get out of that bad run for whatever reason, we're gonna have to replace this guy at some point. And so it's just like due diligence ahead of time for a replacement that you might need to make a few months in the future. Mm. <laughs> and and so um, what we found was like the mates network is very unsuccessful in finding your future good head coach like and almost regardless of how big your club is uh so we wanted to start like building objective information in it. And even if you don't hire the people that we review at least give us a structure that says okay we need somebody that's willing to play with our play our young players uh we need somebody that wants to play in this type of style um and, and those are usually like the the two biggest ones but that's still pretty good um, you know, some guys are a little bit crazy and you know can we incorporate a little element of that in in the reviews or not like you know looking at news reports and stuff like that so it's basically building these dossiers that you would for any executive recruitment that gets paid anywhere near what these guys get paid right it's just dumb not to do it mm. it takes you what you know five figures in order to to get a much bigger profile of like 15 to 20 head coaches that you're gonna then pay their whole group say uh, 12 million over the course of the, the contract. Mm. It's just, like, it's, it's a bad idea not to do it. So when it comes to Mourinho, this is probably not the best example because obviously at an elite club, there probably aren't as many as many options or you're more likely to go to an obvious option instead of giving it to Chris Wilder or something like that. If you were looking at Spurs and, and looking to fit someone for that club, what are some of the criteria that you would sort of naturally go to? I think they're quite athletic right now. Um, you need to kind of be able to succeed with the talent that they have or maybe one or two additional buys, though. It's not going to be like United where they just spend a ton of money or, you know, Man City or whatever. So you need to be a little careful about somebody on that perspective. Uh, can you get the most out of who they have? They have a great midfield right now. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but they're also coming off the back of allegedly being quite frustrated and tired of the, the regime of Pochettino and they want them to press, but he they then haven't really pressed very well. So... It's a, it's a tricky thing. Like, there's a lot of context around it. Uh, you can at least advise about the context, despite the fact that there are stats there. Mm. And be like, hey, you know, we think that you guys should play a pressing style, a bit like Bocatino did. Uh, but if you don't want that, um, maybe you want somebody that's a good man and manager that still plays a pretty good style, that knows how to do this or that. Um, you know, Marcelino's out there. He's a, a different A lot of people are interested in Marcelino, aren't they? They're ex- excited by him as a manager. Yeah, I mean, I think Marcelino would have cost quite a bit less than Mourinho. But, you know, Mourinho is... He's not bad. Uh, I think he... It depends how you want to spin Mourinho, isn't it? You can... Can he galvanise that squad? Absolutely. Can he win your trophies? Absolutely. 
could he be a problem as well? Absolutely. So yeah. It's a bit of a gamble, isn't it? Well, and I think that almost every head coach is a gamble, though, and, and so that's what you're looking at, too. Um, you know, maybe you don't sign him in a three-and-a-half-year contract, but I, as we said on the podcast yesterday, I'm almost sure that there are break clauses inside of there that if they don't qualify for the Champions League, then they, they don't have to yeah, pay yeah, like yeah. the tail end of it. Another element of it with Mourinho is is maybe coming off the back of a manager. You look at Fergie and then David Moyes coming in. I think there was an element where, I mean, you're never going to be the same sort of have the same sort of standing in the game or the personalities to kind of get you through it. Jose Mourinho, I think that is one strength that could work in his favour is the fact that he, you've got Pochettino who's this huge manager. If you went to a Marcelino, there might there might not be the same kind of, not credit in the bank, but just that that personality that allows you to kind of move on from such a big manager. Um, is With Statsman, obviously, a lot of the stuff would be physical attributes and, and sort of end product in terms of passing, things like that. What about sort of behavioural metrics? What are your thoughts on, on that? And how is that evolving? Uh, hmm. I think that there are some things that I discounted early in the, the period when we were at the, the clubs that I would account for more, which is that, you know, guys that are considered to be problems, like, they don't generally change much, and they go from place to place to place. So even if they're super talented, uh, they often cause issues or unrest uh, at the places they go. And, you know, maybe if you've got a strong squad, you can handle one or two of those, but, like, you really don't want to make everybody's job harder. Mm. Um, so we kind of, we definitely take that into account. Um, but also there's so much snake oil out there about psychological stuff and there's also a lot of conventional wisdom that you have to have this that we've certainly proven to be wrong through the years uh, so like here's a good example that IX team was really very young right they had mm. a few older players but very young and people are like oh well, we need experience well many of those players have played like three league campaigns at that point right so they have experience and they're they're just young mm. so some of them are leaders like outright leaders you know uh, but yes, they finished in the semifinals of the of the Champions League, somewhat unexpectedly. And how do you account for those players? Like people, experience is vastly overrated. You think? Absolutely. So, so because I and age I, in particular as experience is right. Yes, yeah, yeah. I understand because yeah, bad habits are bad habits, and if you've got them at twenty one or got them at thirty, it's the same. It's the same kind of thing. Sure, but not only that. Like you know, oh, I need I need players that have experience in the Premier League or in in the Champion in England. No, this is a lie. Like many of the best players in the Premier League have not been in the Premier League previously and immediately came in and just sparks flew and they were awesome. Right. Uh, you know, Mohamed Salah is a great example, right? Uh, you know, all of the city signings over the years have been really strong. Mm. It has nothing to do with Premier League proven. Like, that's a bunch of nonsense. Because, yeah, I, I was talking to my friends about leadership and the, dis- the fact that Arsenal supposedly don't have leaders. And so then you, the question you ask is, when did they have leaders? And the players that they go to, I, I agree. I think I think you could say, you can say Patrick Vieira is a leader. You can say uh, Tony Evans is a leader. But they're also leaders in winning teams. So there are because <laughs> I think uh, something I've heard a lot is how do you you know how do you measure heart or something like that. You can say, for example, in the Liverpool team, you can measure that. James Milner at heart or Henderson heart. You'll see it in the amount of sprints that they do, the interceptions that come from them. So. I think the thing with leadership, a lot of it comes from being right and getting it right. Would you agree with that? What are your thoughts on, on leadership? I, I think leadership remains important. Uh, we would say that the models kind of quantify it from the top down. 
And if you have no leaders, you might have a harder time succeeding. Uh, I think communication is the thing that's like a much bigger deal that doesn't get talked about. So like basically a coaching role is a communicator and a teacher. And if you cannot get your ideas across to players, uh, then like how are you going to succeed, right? What is my job? <coughs> and, and so many coaches talk in a language that has no, no applicable action attached to it. So uh, you need to do the work. Right? Like, that's something the coach might say. Mm. Uh, press. Okay, but like, what does press mean, right? Is it in this situation, in this situation, in this situation? There's a whole bunch of moments that you need to clarify what that means. Uh, you need to be more aggressive. Again, what does that mean? Yeah. Right? Like, these are, these are things that we use. And, and they matter. But within the context of a game, you're not telling that player what he's supposed to do. You're giving him, like, a nothing. Yeah. And if you're giving them nothings on a regular basis, right? Like you need to be more aggressive. Well, how do you want me to be more aggressive in order to operate in your system? Mm. And actionable language is something that is really missing from some coaches, uh, possibly because it's their second or third language, which again, I understand that. But communicating and teaching is almost entirely your job. Uh, maybe some of it is man management as well. If you fail to do that, then your players are going to look lost. And it's not because they're not leaders. It's because you're not telling them what they need to do yeah. in a way that they can understand it. And that's your fault. That's not theirs. And, and picking up upon <clears throat> little bits of feeling on players at different moments. Because that, that communication needs to be right consistently over a long period of time. You can lose a player so quickly, you know, right? So here's a really good example from a player that we were around that was a young player and looked like he had the world at his feet. But we were talking to the coaches about it and being like, I think that he makes um, the wrong decision regularly based on his skill set. So here's an example of a player that we were around and we talked to the coaches and we looked at his skill set and be like, I think that he's making poor decisions as we get toward the final third. Um, based on what he can do. And, uh, and his name's Pioni Sisto, um, went on to Celta Vigo, uh, but he's a very good passer. He's a, a lightning quick dribbler, and he would often end up taking long shots. Now he's a pretty decent long range shooter, but the fact of the matter is, if you're a very good passer and a lightning quick dribbler, you have a lot more stuff that you can do in and around the box that will be better for the squad if you're able to be a little more aggressive um, take more risk in that in those spaces, but the coaches have to encourage him to take the risk. Right. You, you have to you have to nudge him forward, make him comfortable that if he doesn't, if the ball gets taken away, it's not that big a deal. If he he makes a pass to his teammate and like something bad happens, again, it's not that big a deal. Um, and and so looking at some player skill sets, like the easy way out is to take that long shot and hope you score a goal. But the correct way for those players is to actually be more dangerous, potentially create a pullback or a cutback, mm -hmm. um, you know, square it to the open man that's on the far post. And that actually, or, you know, even take a shot from just, you know, yeah. two meters further in. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> you go from like a 2% to, to an 8%. That's like four times the chance, right? Mm -hmm. So like that's a, that's a pretty big deal. And so coaches have to, have to both be careful with players not to break them in that like you want to make sure that they understand their roles and their decisions in all these spaces but also like given their skill sets you need to encourage them to be more comfortable taking risks especially up front where it's not dangerous for you because the rewards if they succeed are so much bigger than if they just take the easy option and, and shoot from range mm. you're talking about sort of different chances there uh, i i put on twitter 
I asked the sort of a few questions and see what people were thinking. One that sort of kept coming up was was XG, and so I I host a show um, for for the Premier League, and it's about fantasy Premier League, and the Premier League uh, aren't huge on XG, and there's there's just a lot of discussion about XG. Um, <coughs> so two questions with this: what first of all, what are your thoughts on XG? Because I think it's becoming a more prominent statistic, and th- th- there are a lot of different ways of looking at XG, am I right in saying that? Possibly. People yeah. have different models. Um, and then, what do you think are the next steps for, for XG as it evolves? Because I imagine it's evolved a, a huge amount already. It has, yeah. Uh, so expected goals is, uh, or XG, is a really good framework for kind of valuing the game. Um, it falls down a little bit as you get further back, and we've looked at different ways to, to correct for that. But it's really just like, how good was a given chance, right? Um, aggregated across many different things. And one of the problems you get is like, say there's a, it looks like a really good chance uh, in the data, but then the model says that, or you know, the reality is the video, it was behind the player, and so it's actually a pretty poor chance, or skimmed off the top of his head, because it's like, you know, he got his head on it, but it's like an eight and a half foot cross, and he skims off, and like, that's not a good chance, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the reasons why we did better data uh, and started adding all the players between the, the shot and the goal and the position of the goalkeeper was to try and correct for little bits of that. And it was because the coaches were like, hey, we could do better. And that's why, why Statsmo data kind of has had the uptake that it has because it's a little bit better at, at estimating an individual chance and like crimping in the air bars. Um, but I think XG is actually like really important across a lot of different factors inside of football. And it graduates from expected goals is usually what we treat as uh, the quality of an of a shot, right? Should he have scored that, or, or did we get unlucky today? Yeah, yeah, like that's kind of the the context around it. Um, the next level of that is: Are we moving the ball into dangerous areas, and are we progressing the ball in ways that's really valuable? If you always progress the ball wide, then then have to cross it. That's a very inefficient way of uh, of playing football. Because uh, you have to get a little bit lucky. Maybe if they have short center backs, you might have a better chance at it. <clears throat> but on the it's whole, Trent and Robertson that might help as well. Uh, possibly, but you know, Liverpool also will play centrally mm. quite often. Um, <coughs> sorry. Uh, so, bringing the ball into valuable space becomes the focus of like that next level. And is this player, um, you know, progressing the ball in, in ways that are dangerous? Can he make a pass that then improves the potential chance for us to score? Uh, even from far back to, to central. Uh, and that's kind of the next level. It usually involves some level of tracking data in order to really start to contextualize everything. But it is something that, so on our on our YouTube channel, we have one, we, yeah. Uh, on our YouTube, link is in the description. <laughs> <laughs> on our YouTube channel, we have lots of talks from our conference. And our conference had a lot of uh, discussion about this type of modeling and the next levels and Javier Fernandez does it for Barcelona uh, but there are plenty of other places that are doing it too and it's, I think uh, Liverpool called theirs possession value added or whatever Ian Graham talked about that mm-hmm. last week at, uh, at the Barcelona conference so anyway that's, that's kind of the, the levels XG is pretty useful for an individual chance it's not as useful um, and, and then possession value is, is kind of the next level that you need more data you need better data but it more accurately results uh, represents the game at kind of all spots. Right. Because the, the other thing with XG is a, a friend of mine, uh, this guy called Chris Pajak, who uh, has a Liverpool channel, loves his statistics as well. What he he messaged me this morning asking about that, that extra element of who that chance is against as well. 
you know, Messi is obviously playing one. He's is the XG of a chance for the whole team. Does that does that change dependent on who's having that that chance uh, as well? But I guess there's a broader question there then, of where do you stop? I think as a broad, the broader question I actually want to get to is, okay, there's data, there's stats, and that's great, but the difference between data and information are two different things. So do you have a general kind of rule or process in terms of where to stop in terms of adding different elements to it for a formula? Well, we're always conscious of sample size and finishing ability takes quite a bit of sample. Goalkeeper ability takes an even larger sample because uh, goalkeepers like don't really control anything. Mm. Uh, they, <clears throat> they're told how to distribute based on their coach and what they want. Uh, their teammates... Uh, defending is kind of what controls the shot that comes against them and you know a lot of the things that they deal with are reaction saves and stuff like that so it's, it's very difficult um, the the skill element on the vast majority of shots is probably overrated you know especially if you control by position so it's possible that defenders are far worse shooters than than forwards that makes sense that's yeah. a selection bias etc uh, but you have to be careful that when you do that like you've just got a big enough sample so for an individual shooter, <clears throat> I take something like 150 shots in order to figure out, like, are they pretty good or not at, at moving the needle on chance quality? Uh, I will say that Messi is the most insane finisher that we've basically ever seen. Uh, he Once he gets inside the box area, he just scores everything. And it's it's just it's crazy. <laughs> And it also it's outside so the box, far ahead, is it? from direct free kicks, also the same way. Uh, the only guy that I can remember that was even remotely kind of on the same path was <coughs> Lucas Podolski, and and Podolski hit it so hard right. that that like changed reaction times for goalkeepers, and he was probably like a crazy good finisher as well. Uh, there are other players out there that are good, like Aguero's good, Lacazette in particular uh, looks like a quite a good finisher. Uh, and you get enough sample, you can have a little belief there. Uh, I will tell you, like the goalkeeper side of it. It's very tricky what happens when they have an injury. So Neuer, we think, was actually really quite good at saving stuff, reaction saves uh, for a long time. And then he had a pretty bad injury. And mm. for like the past two seasons before this, was actually bad, very bad in, in saving stuff. And part of it was probably just that like his body wasn't able to do the same things that he did before, but he played like that because like it's very difficult to change how you play. So like that's that's like more stuff. Like there's always complicating factors. That yes, of course. Of. Well, another one is, uh, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, game state. So the situation within the game, right? So, and the thing that interests me is pressure. And so, be it England, for example, smashing it in the qualifiers, beating every team, beating them easily, playing a similar level team in a World Cup and, and then struggling. What are your thoughts on on the that, that element of, of pressure and how that affects different people. Does that make, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, hmm. So we, we have pressures as an event and pressures closing down another player with the ball and forcing them to make a decision. Uh, so different pressure that you mean here. So yeah, mental pressure. Um, I think mental pressure is, like, you don't want to get rid of it. You want players to feel comfortable. But again, like as a media narrative, it's, it's often overrated. What do, you are the problems? See, do you see differences between, say, a regular season and then then the playoffs or something like that? A little bit, but most of the problems comes with like the scheme, right? So are you playing a different style than you played in the playoffs? Are you more risk averse? 
Like that's not necessarily down to pressure on the players. That's pressure on the coach, mm. and he's making changes or she's potentially making changes. Uh, I guess there's your metric, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, if you're not taking the chances, then that's going to lead to your passes, pass completion being either not as good or you're playing less passes or it's not going to fit and that's how it's going to change it. You're playing safer. Mm. And, and you can get that out of the data. You're like, okay, this is what they did like during qualifying and then this is now what they did during the World Cup. Uh, they played it super safe and they wanted to just create off of set pieces. So I, I think that might actually be more of a coaching element and less of a player element. Mm. Which I think, again, I keep coming back to, I, I like the fact that these are all parts of it, but it can still come back to communication. It can still come back to that player's, that player's sort of um, ability to be fine under pressure. I was listening to a podcast and it was talking about if you ever think players will be comfortable um, allowing their real-time stats to, to be sort of shown to the, to the world. And there were two views on it. There was one that it's too sort of private a thing that can cost you your job. And another one is, it, well, it can be the thing that could get you a, a job. And so it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I, there's the, the GDPR thing, which is uh, if you're looking at wearables, then they actually own that data and you have to get a waiver off of it. But if you're just looking at the data of what they do on the, on the broadcast, like that's different because like, it's like watching a BBC program and saying, okay, this person was in this scene. Like, once it's broadcast, then anybody can do like their own sort of data collection, mm. and it's just out there. Um, <clears throat> and you know, players will start to learn you know, what they think matters and what doesn't, and you want to guide them to like the right set of choices so that they're not spoofing the metrics or things like that. But if your if your framework is is theoretically robust, like, and it's just about how do we play the best style of football, then it should all boil down to if we coach players to play better football and make better decisions in these situations, mm. it'll all come out in the wash at the mm. end. On on a personal note, don't worry, it's not too bad. Uh, information analytics, living your life in that world, how has that affected your choices? How do you, do you use anything that you've kind of gathered from your sort of working life, the process of your working life in terms of stats and finding outliers or find, finding information? Do you take that into your day-to-day life in any way? Yeah, I think the, the whole concept of distributions is like, if I make this choice, what are the, the 25th percentile, the 50th percentile, the 75th percentile like, outcomes? And because I run a startup, like, that's actually kind of a big deal. Yeah. You want to look at it and say, okay, if our company is valued here, um, you know, what does it look like in three to five years' time if we make this set of choices or this set of choices? Right. And, and that actually is super valuable. Um, and, and it's true in, in a lot of different ways. You know, maybe you don't do that on your personal relationship uh, <laughs> set of choices, but certainly in, in like your life and your career and do I take this and what does it look like? Um, you know, mapping out possibilities, I think, is, mm. is really pretty important. If I take this job now for less money, like what options does that constrain me from in the future? And you know, most of the time, like I get analysts that talk to me all the time, kids that want to get involved in, in football analytics. They love yeah. it. And I totally understand that. And basically, they often have skill sets that are super valuable in the business world, but they want to work in sport. I'm like, look, if you have like a six-figure offer coming out of school to work as like a high-end computer developer and data scientist, take that job for at least a few years <laughs> yeah. and put a bunch of money in the bank because like you probably don't have much in the way of expenses. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is... By doing that, you know, two, three, four years down the road, especially if you're still doing this other stuff as a, as a hobby, 
Like you open up so many other potential choices for yourself that it doesn't mean that you're eating ramen every week. Yeah. And yeah, I think I think that's like a, a good qualifier for a quality of life. Do so I like, not have to eat ramen? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's a great. Comment. Maybe you like ramen and yeah. that's okay. But there's different levels of ramen, isn't there? Yes. That's it. I understand. Because I think you've spoken about it a couple of times in terms of that sort of of working backwards but I guess from the other side of it if you can understand the knock-on effects then that's that's a better understanding of where you want to get to sure and so that that's that's really really interesting um a few final bits um one is a question I ask everyone what keeps you up at night and that could be personal or that can be more likely status bomb what keeps you up at night hiring uh hiring is very difficult and I get a chance to talk to a lot of people in different sort of startups or big companies or in the football space and hiring almost never gets easier and it's always a challenge to make sure that you get the best people into you know, your company or your football club or whatever to then hopefully be able to succeed alongside of them but they're humans and it's always complicated mm. so yeah that's that's a big one like hiring the right people at, at things that we can afford um, that's very challenging across like every walk of life yeah um, and I think that's mostly it like I I had a health scare uh, back in like 2013 and it kind of really changed my perception of a lot of stuff, really? like a lot more positivity. Um, you know, it feels like I just, I enjoy life a lot more because I know that you know, it's a little fragile. Yeah. And so, yeah, hopefully, um, you know, uh, we continue to, to progress and I don't have too many bad nights. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. Yeah, flu's <laughs> enough. Flu, good, flu, good, good. Uh, speaking of hiring, what is the one attribute, if you could only... If you can only have a player who's got one attribute, one physical, one mental, what would be the, the, the priority for you, the players? I know that's really, really broad, but is there anything that is always just so, so crucial? Um, I mean, passing kind of is always the choice that you lean toward because even guys that are a little slow, if they're good passers, they can make up for that in kind of decision-making choices and ability to pass. Um, yeah, as, as you get higher up the levels, you know, there's still selection bias. You've got to be pretty fast and pretty strong in order to even play in the Premier League. Right. Like it's a very physical league and it's fast paced. Uh, so, yeah, from, from that, you know, being able to like see the pitch and also scanning is like a big deal because it kind of allows you to see the future a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's a, that's a big one that we constantly look for in, in recruitment. Uh, pace would be like the, the next closest one. If you can get that combination, can overcome a lot of other things yeah um mentally like a willingness to learn like do you like learning because most of the time we look towards youngish players uh, as guys that we recruit and we feel like you can continue to improve <clears throat> if you can continue to improve then what we see right now can then be enhanced on but if you don't like learning if you just think that like this is the way that i want to play the game now then that, that really cuts down your potential. Mm. And that's true for like employees, it's true for, uh, for footballers, like it's all around. So a bit of myth busting. If there's one myth you could just tell everyone and have them armoured and ready to go when some guy on Twitter or some guy or girl on Twitter says this thing and it's utter nonsense and we can end it right now. What is the myth that you would love to bust? So the funny thing is I don't see this as much. Like, I. Because we're six, seven years after I started, you know, a lot of the nonsense has been filtered out of my feed, either by blocking or <laughs> muting, uh, or, or simply that the people that talk to me are, are more educated. They opt into my feed because yeah. they, they, it's a natural thing where they like to know more about football. I think there's one, there's one account out there 
uh, and probably a lot of them name this, but like goals are overrated. And I think that that one is kind of my favorite <laughs> way of contextualizing almost everything that we do. Right. Because it's true. Oh, right. Goals themselves are overrated. Yeah. The ability to regularly score goals and create goals is not overrated. And so there's a probabilistic element that said that <clears throat> you know, football has a lot of luck inside of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Liverpool had a goal scored against them that bounced off of a beach ball. <laughs> right? Yes. Good and, point. Yeah. and it's not just. Things happen. Yes, things happen. <laughs> and mistakes happen. Uh, but the ability to put yourself in situations where you can regularly win games because you're scoring a lot and not allowing your opponent very many chances, like that is repeatable success. Mm. And so the goals themselves at like an individual rate or even through a season, you know, guys can, can have like 60, 70% above their XG across like an 18, 19 game sample. That's a half season, right? Mm. You do that over the full season and they all come back to earth for the most part, except Messi. Uh, and, and so like the question is, have we found another Messi? Or is this going to revert to the mean because like all these goals say that he should have scored half as many. Right. And, and that's kind of a, a big thing, like being able to drill down a little bit further about what the process of the goal scoring in the games is, is what this is about. And it's been pretty successful since 2013. Okay. Uh, the next big metric, what is the next one that will be, everyone will be looking at and living by? Uh, I think that the possession value added stuff is probably the biggest one, but there's an open question of does anybody care about it at the fan level? And I don't think that it necessarily translates to fans. Uh, it's something that, that you care a lot about if you're inside of football <coughs> and have to make decisions based off of this. From a tactical opponent scouting, that specific stat or stats in general. Well, it, so it gets deeper and deeper, right? Like there, there become all these acronyms that get tossed about. I think expected goals is probably as far as as fans need to go to feel like some comfort that I understand what We're happened lucky or, or not. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And and it it fits the way that we talk about the game. Obsession uh, value added. I think that it matters for people who are professionally involved in this, right. but I don't see it as something that's going to break across the mainstream and be like really sexy, unless suddenly it's included in like the Premier League's uh, fantasy. In which case, you know, then maybe everybody gets involved. But okay, and final one, crucial one, with all the stats, all the knowledge that you have, who's going to win the league? At this point, I'm pretty sure it's Liverpool. Okay, um, but that's still like. Yeah, maybe an 80-20, I think. Okay. That's as strong as that. <clears throat> I, there's still a lot of games left. Mm, right? Of course, of course. So there's like 26 games left-ish. And, you know, City are good. Liverpool could have some injuries. Like, all these things are, are baked into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leicester probably not going to win the league. So, But Chelsea, like, surprisingly good this year. Yeah, annoyingly, <laughs> if I'm honest. Yeah, I, d- I didn't expect that either. I'm going to lose a bet on it. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Partly because Arsenal didn't get better, uh, mm. and, and Chelsea <clears throat> have, uh, have been playing good football. So yeah, it's, 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 all, it's a strong lean toward Liverpool. Um, but, you know, City are... It's, they're facing a team that have set points records in the last two seasons for yeah. the first and second best team ever in the Premier League. And, and so you look at that, and you're like, you know, this amount of lead with this amount of games left and how good City can be... We could still be catchable. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's that's, that's, yeah. And finally, sorry, I have got to ask you this. Okay. Final one, I promise. We've seen sort of the evolution of football and how it's kind of changed. Obviously, the different things that come in and that makes a big difference back pastoral, things like that. In the last few years, pressing's been a big, big thing. 
where do you see this sort of evolution of, of football going? Because pressing, you know, continues to do well uh, for, for a lot of teams. And often it's, it's about trends and things like that. But is there a trend or an evolution of uh, the sport that you can sort of, you feel like you can see on the horizon? Uh, I kind of have said that teams will become smarter about set pieces. I'm not sure that that's going to happen as much, but we, we try and do our part there. Because um, there's just like so much to make up for. And, and mm. like I said, free it's goals. such a controlled moment, right? Sure, and, and, and free goals. Everybody loves free goals. So like, why not? Especially when <clears throat> every goal in the Premier League is like 2.5 million pounds. Right. So if you're able to create two extra goals, like that's a lot of value. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think that set pieces a little bit, there's going to be a tactical ebb and flow kind of constantly. Um, pressing, I don't think, will fully go out of style, uh, especially systemic pressing uh, with positional elements. Um, but, you know, there are times that, that managers who march to a different beat or head coaches that march to a different beat have done quite successful against that. So <coughs> Conte has done pretty well in the past. Lucien Favre a little bit against that. Marcelino a little bit against that. And so there's not, like, one absolutely correct choice. Mm. Uh, I think if you were to do the the Conte or the or the like the Marcelino style, add set pieces to it, and you're like one of the few that have that, that's a big benefit because there are not as many teams that are used to playing that. So every time they play you, like they see different stuff and they yeah. have to make those uh, decisions in the spur of the moment. So I think that that's pretty um, that's useful if you have it. Like Big Sam being like the only big team was really useful for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And then you saw like four or five other head coaches, uh, usually English trained, bring their teams in. And Arsenal's now switching to four center backs uh, when they play <laughs> these types of teams. And they kind of understand it better. Right. They, they figured it out eventually. But yeah, so, it's, yeah. it's a constant battle, it seems. It's, everyone's got it's what makes it fun. Exactly, yeah. If, if, it, if it were always the same, it would be really frustrating. Absolutely. But yeah, I, I think like the, the tactical variation we've seen change a ton over the years. And some things go in and out of style, but like there's never one exact right answer, and that's great. Mm. Ted, thank you so much. I would shake your hand, with you, but no, I, I, yeah, I don't need. You should have this. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, as Ted said, there is a Statsbomb YouTube channel, so go and subscribe to that. And the podcast is brilliant. I listen to it every week. So yeah, please go check that out as well. Obviously, this is a the the process is. A, a podcast as well so you can download that on iTunes and Spotify if you're new to the channel hit the subscribe button and the like button let me know your thoughts in the comments below and I'll see you soon spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout let's hear that one more time the world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.